What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. After months of Donald Trump's attorneys legal wrangling and trying to get delays in his criminal trials in three states and D.C., a judge in Manhattan put his foot down and firmly scheduled the hush money payments trial for March 25th. Trump complained outside the courthouse. I'm going to have to sit here for months on a trial. I think it's ridiculous. It's unfair. In fact, other judges are weighing decisions this week that will have major implications for Trump. In Atlanta, a judge is hearing from witnesses in a motion to get prosecutor Fannie Willis kicked off the Georgia RICO case. And tomorrow, a Manhattan judge is slated to deliver a bombshell verdict in New York's civil fraud trial against Trump. In addition, the Supreme Court is weighing whether to put Trump's D.C. election case on hold while he appeals the D.C. Circuit Court ruling that he does not have presidential immunity from prosecution. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. It seems like Trump now is asking that these cases be put off until after the election. He, they certainly asked for that in this case, and they made similar arguments in the Supreme Court briefing. One theme that we've seen from the Trump defense team throughout all of these cases is the allegation, number one, that they're politically motivated, but sort of piggybacking on that idea, they say that at a minimum, none of these cases should go to trial until after the election. And to do so before the election is an unconstitutional violation because it interferes with former President Trump's ability to campaign and ultimately interferes with the right of people in this country to decide who should be their next president. Longstanding Department of Justice policy has always been that federal prosecutors should try to avoid bringing indictments in a way that may affect an upcoming election. Now, that typically has meant that no indictments should be returned against an individual within 60 days of an election on the theory that if you simply charge somebody with a crime, they are still considered innocent because they have not yet been convicted, but the allegations alone may affect the outcome of the election. And so that generally has been the rule. Here we're seeing indictments that were handed down long ago, but the trial itself is now beginning to bump up with the campaign season. It's not something that we've ever seen before. Certainly we've never seen it in connection with a former president running for the presidency for a third time. And so there is no real case law on this issue. But I think all of the judges down the line have taken the view that they are trying to get these cases done before the election, but ultimately they cannot consider as a reason to delay the trial, simply the fact that former President Trump wants to be campaigning for office. Also, it seems like the judges, having seen the way Trump's attorneys act in court, some would say, you know, they're over the top in their presentation, they interrupt a lot. This judge just put up with no nonsense from these attorneys. The judge in the Manhattan DA's case has been very no nonsense from the start and set a March 25th date for this trial to begin. 
Initially, the thought was that the trial out of the District of Columbia, the federal trial that deals with the events surrounding January 6th, that was going to be the first trial. But now that case has been hung up on appeals. Former President Trump's lawyers are arguing that he should be immune from any criminal conduct while he was president. And that has been making its way through the courts. A unanimous three-judge panel for the Court of Appeals rejected that argument. The Trump defense team has now sought appeal by the Supreme Court, and we're waiting to hear whether the Supreme Court will stay the lower court trial while that decision is made, and even whether the Supreme Court will take the case. But while the case in Washington, D.C. has been delayed because of these appeals, it has set the stage for the Manhattan DA's case to now be the first case where a former president is facing criminal charges. And unlike the case brought by the New York Attorney General, which was a civil case that dealt with the Trump Organization and whether or not assets had been inflated improperly in order to get more favorable loan terms, that case, former President Trump was not required to attend every day. And so he did sporadically. But the criminal case is one where he will have to attend every day. So it will be a historic spectacle to see a former President Trump sitting in the courtroom every day during a criminal trial. It's never been done before, and it's going to happen beginning on March 25th in Manhattan. Now, there were several arguments that Trump's lawyers, they raised every argument I think you could imagine. And they said that despite the fact that the D.C. trial has been put on hold, they said they've been preparing for that trial. We had to focus 100 percent of our attention on preparing for that trial. And the judge basically said, too bad. He said, you willingly chose those two cases to represent Trump in. I told you March 25th was a date certain. You proceeded at your own peril. So what ends up happening is that judges have to navigate the other cases in terms of scheduling their trials. There's no set rules and there is no set procedure to determine which case goes to trial first. And so what the judges here have done is they have tried to be respectful of the other proceedings and tried to not get in the way of other trials that were set to go first. And that's why we saw the case in the District of Columbia set to go in early March. And the Manhattan DA's case, the case that is now going to trial at the end of March, was going to be delayed because of the case in the District of Columbia involving the January 6th insurrection. But now that that case is put off, the case in Manhattan is going first. And this judge has said from the beginning that you have to be ready to go in March if we go first. Now, the Trump defense team has raised a litany of issues as to why the Manhattan DA's case should be delayed. One of them, as you mentioned, is that they had been preparing for the case in Washington. Clearly, everybody thought that case was going to go first, but the judge in Manhattan really had no patience with that argument by saying, you chose to represent former President Trump in these two cases. There could have been another lawyer in that case, and that is something you did at your own risk. And so he was not going to delay the trial for that reason. They also raised a number of other arguments saying that would interfere with the campaign season, That was something that was not successful. The Trump defense team also tried to delay the trial by tying it to the recent verdict in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. That's the case that was recently decided also in Manhattan that had to deal with allegations that he had defamed E. Jean Carroll in connection with a sexual assault. There was a large verdict, a lot of publicity, an $83 million plaintiff's verdict on behalf of E. Jean Carroll for defaming her when he denied that he sexually assaulted her. And the Trump lawyers were saying that that will taint the jury pool. Again, the judge thought that can be dealt with a trial. 
that can be dealt with during jury selection. You always have issues of a person who has a lot of notoriety. People have strong opinions about him. Frankly, you're never going to find a jury in Manhattan that doesn't have strong opinions about former President Trump. And so the voir dire process where lawyers get to question jurors will have to be used effectively to try to weed out anybody who has a preconceived notion about what the verdict should be. And they will ultimately have to take whatever time it does in order to select a jury that has an open mind that will make a decision based solely on the evidence and not based upon any preconceived notions or any extraneous information that's not presented at trial. So now Michael Cohen is going to be key, his testimony in this case. Trump's lawyers complain that Cohen had committed perjury when he testified in October in the New York Attorney General's case. And they said, how can we possibly go to a trial with a witness who committed perjury across the street two months ago? They should be investigating him. Well, what the Trump team was referring to was in the New York Attorney General's case where former President Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, was was also a key witness. He had testified under oath that former President Trump had directed him to inflate his assets, again, in order to try to receive more favorable loans from Deutsche Bank. Cohen later changed that story during the trial to say that while he was not directly directed by former President Trump, it was implied by former President Trump that he wanted to inflate those assets. The Trump defense team has said that Cohen has allegedly admitted to perjury. Whether that was perjury or not is an open question, but the right remedy for that, and this is what the prosecution argued, is that that is fodder for cross-examination. Michael Cohen will be a key witness in the case of Manhattan DA's office. He already carries a lot of baggage with him because he's pled guilty to federal campaign violations. He's admitted to lying in other proceedings. And so we can expect a very rigorous cross-examination of him during this trial. And the Trump lawyers will essentially argue that you can't believe anything Michael Cohen says. And then ultimately it will be up to a jury to decide whether he's telling the truth when he testifies in this trial. And, Bob, this is the case that's going first. This is also the case that most legal analysts and others consider the weakest of the criminal cases against Donald Trump. Explain why it's considered the weakest. One of the issues that has been dogging this case from the outset was the way in which the Manhattan DA charged it. This is basically a charge for falsifying business records. And in this case, what it means is that back in October of 2016, the allegation is that former President Trump through Michael Cohn, his former attorney, was paying off Stormy Daniels, a porn star who alleged that she had an affair with former President Trump. The allegation is that former President Trump, who was campaigning for office then, was concerned about this allegation going public and damaging his chances in the election. So there was a payment made to Stormy Daniels through Michael Cohn that was later concealed as a legal payment. Ultimately, that created, according to the Manhattan DA, a false business record. Now, typically, business record violations in New York State are misdemeanors, which means they're punishable only by up to a year in prison, and they're relatively minor charges. But what the DA did here is he turned those into felonies, which you can do if the business record violation is somehow tied to another crime, or in this case, the concealment of another crime. Now, the real issue here is that the concealment of the other crime was a federal campaign law violation. And that theory, tying the business records violation to a federal rather than a state law violation, has never been tested in the appeals court. 
So although that issue was argued before the trial judge in Manhattan and the judge rejected it, I think we can see that issue raised again on appeal. And if there's going to be a real problem with this case, it's not likely to be in the evidence that's presented at trial. It's likely to be in this legal theory, which is somewhat novel, never been tested. It's possible that on appeal, an appeals court may look at the trial court ruling and take a different view as to whether or not there was a legal basis to bring these charges in the first place. And another, which you discussed earlier, is just that so much of the case relies on the testimony of Michael Cohen, and the defense has so many ways to attack him. Yeah, Michael Cohen is certainly a problematic witness, but prosecutors deal with that all the time. They will typically argue that you don't have cooperating witnesses who have clean hands. You don't have cooperating witnesses who are choir boys. You have people who have gotten down into the dirt, who have engaged in illegal acts, and that's why they're valuable as witnesses, because they played a key role in the crime. So that's sort of a standard playbook for prosecutors. But the flip side to that is that defense lawyers have the ability to question their credibility and say to jurors, Michael Cohn has admitted to lying under oath before. Why do you believe he's not lying under oath now? And so it'll be up to prosecutors to try to prop up Michael Cohn by presenting other evidence or other witnesses and corroborating documentary evidence to try to convince the jury that they should believe Michael Cohn. And they're going to do that by not resting their entire case on Michael Cohn's credibility, on his testimony, but by saying that when you view his testimony in connection with all the other evidence that's being presented, it's something that the jury can believe. It's something that the jury can believe the prosecution has met its burden of proof on, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. But ultimately, you're correct. Michael Cohen will be the star witness, and whether he's believed by this jury will ultimately determine the outcome of the case. Trump has put himself in this position because he's trying to delay all these trials, and so they run into each other because of his attempts at delay. I mean, otherwise, the D.C. trial would have gone off in early March, and the New York judge was prepared to put that case on hold. Well, yeah, and that's one of the reasons the trial judge gave for rejecting the delay, saying that former President Trump and his legal team had fought critical subpoenas in the Manhattan DA's case, which ultimately delayed the trial. And that's certainly true that there has been tremendous motion practice and appeals in all of these cases, and it has delayed them. And now the Trump defense team is trying to flip that on its head and saying, well, now that we're too close to the election, we really ought to carry it over until after November. But so far, we're not seeing the trial judge buying that argument. And, Bob, you mentioned how important the jury selection will be in the hush money case. And there was discussion today about the jury questionnaire that potential jurors will fill out before the voir dire. The judge hasn't decided on the final questionnaire yet. But both the prosecution and the defense discussed having jurors identify where they get their news from. The prosecutors also want the judge to find out if potential jurors have read any of Trump's books. And lawyers for Trump also asked the judge to question potential jurors about what kind of bumper stickers and lawn signs they had in front of their homes to determine their politics. So it is likely to be a long questionnaire. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And in Atlanta today, in an extraordinary hearing that threatens to upend one of the four criminal cases against the former president, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis took the witness stand and forcefully pushed back against what she described as lies about her romantic relationship with the special prosecutor she appointed in the case. It's highly offensive when someone lies on you, and it's highly offensive when they try to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them, and I take exception to it. And joining me now from the courthouse in Atlanta is Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. And David, I know it's a little noisy where you are, but I'm happy to have you. It seemed very tense watching this on TV. What was it like in the courtroom? At different times, it was quite tense, uh, particularly when Fonnie Willis was on the stand. She was at times combative. She was funny. She pushed back on many different points that the defense lawyers questioned her on. And again, the Trump co-defendants are accusing her of misconduct and want her removed from the case. And she's very emphatically pushing back against that. So, yes, tense is a word that I would use to describe the atmosphere when she was on the stand and when uh, Nathan Wade was on the stand as well. Let's go back to Nathan Wade for a moment. What did you make of his testimony? He he contradicted what one of the earlier witnesses said about timing of their affair, and timing seems to be very important here. Key to the timing is that Nathan Wade was hired in November of 21, and the Trump co-defendants um, claim that he was having an affair with Bonnie Willis at the end of 2019, which he hotly disputes. He said it didn't begin until early 2022, which is also what Bonnie Willis testified to. The timing matters because it goes to whether the two of them, Bonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, were deriving improper financial benefits from the investigation. There was a lot of quibbling, it seemed to me, over wording because they had his interrogatories in his divorce case that they were quizzing him about. There was a basic point. Nathan Wade is still married, and in his eyes, he testified that he has not been married for several years because his marriage is irretrievably broken, and so he can do what he likes. And so 
in his divorce proceedings, which are happening at the same time in neighboring Cobb County, he filled out affidavits that said that he did not have romantic relationships outside of his marriage. And so Trump's co-defendants are trying to pin him to those words while he's also admitting that he had an affair with Bonnie Willis for a year and a half. And so the question is, was he married or not? He's still legally married. <laughs> so now when she got on the stand, and there was this dramatic moment because they were arguing about whether or not she would have to be called, and she suddenly appeared in the courtroom and said, I'm ready. Right. I'm ready to go. Right. The district attorney's office had fought the subpoena for her. They tried to quash it, and the judge had agreed um, earlier this week that he would temporarily quash it until he saw what the testimony was and decided whether she would need it or not. So then when Trump co-defendant Michael Roman's lawyer, Ashley Merchant, called her, there was a dramatic moment where the district attorney's office said that they were dropping their objections and that she wanted to testify. So in she came to the courtroom and everyone was sort of taken aback. She was very dramatic on the stand. I mean, she seemed like she was in control of the questioning because she got in what she wanted to get in, no matter what the question was. Well, um, the judge didn't always agree with her approach. Mm -hmm. There were times when he thought that she was making speeches and not answering direct questions. She felt she needed more room to answer those questions. And so there were some tense moments with the judge, but clearly this is a woman who's charismatic and a strong speaker and I guess is used to being able to state things the way she wants to. And what do you think she established in her testimony or what did the defense establish in her testimony? Well, the defense raised some substantial questions about how she manages cash. You know, she testified that she had had several thousand dollars in cash in her house at various points and that she consistently reimbursed uh, Nathan Wade for their travels with cash. And so the defense makes uh, the case that there's no receipt of that. There's no proof of her claim that she, in fact, made these cash reimbursements. So that's going to have to be a, um, a question that's left unresolved, and it's something that um, Judge Scott McAfee is going to have to decide. Who's more credible here? Is it Wade and Willis, or was it the friend of Wade who took the stand earlier and said that their affair began in 2019? Let's say they had an affair. Let's say the affair started in 2019. How does that prejudice the defendants here? Well, because it's an undisclosed conflict of interest. They argue that it's something that she should have disclosed to uh, the county, you know, which is paying for his bills, his invoices. And it also um, suggests that um, they have an improper motive in the prosecution and carrying the prosecution on as in the more money he makes, the longer the prosecution goes the more the two of them benefit. So what happens now? Is the hearing over? The hearing will continue on Friday. The judge and the lawyers just made clear that it's going to take most of the day. The judge will then entertain legal arguments after tomorrow. He's going to try to get through the evidentiary part of this hearing tomorrow. And the judge also made clear that it's going to take him a while to make a decision here. Do we know what other witnesses are coming up? She mentioned her father a great deal. There's 
going to be some financial records. There's going to be continued questioning of Bonnie Willis, which could take some time tomorrow. Then the DA's office said that they have witnesses that could take them four hours or so, but they didn't spell them out. Wow, that's a lot more than I expected. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis, obviously coming to us from the courthouse in Atlanta. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll talk more about the hearing in Georgia that could upend one of the criminal trials of Donald Trump. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. You started dating shortly thereafter, correct? A lie. That's one of your lies. A fiery Fannie Willis took the witness stand and denied she engaged in any misconduct in her election fraud prosecution of Donald Trump and his co-defendants. They're trying to disqualify her over a romantic relationship with her lead prosecutor in the case, Nathan Wade. The Fulton County District Attorney adopted a combative tone as Trump's co-defendant Michael Roman claims she and Wade financially benefited from overseeing the sprawling case. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Is it just me or did this seem very tawdry? The case has sort of a tawdry overlay to it because the accusation is that Wade and Willis, with bad purpose, manipulated a system so that they could benefit personally during a romantic relationship. I don't think the evidence has established that, but the accusations surrounding those theories are such that they are upsetting to everyone who's in their minds being falsely accused. So you can see why tempers are running high in this case. So in other words, the theory is that they prolonged this case or they brought this case so that he could make a salary and take her on vacations. Is that the theory here? Yeah. The theory is they have a pre-existing relationship. She hires her boyfriend who then is making good money, who is then taking her out on expensive trips with that money, and that they are prolonging this case with an indictment and an extended discovery process so that they can keep the gravy train going. 
That, it seems to me, is the theory. But I haven't seen any evidence of that. And in fact, the judge at one point, when Wade was on the stand, said to the moving party, why is the amount of money he earned relevant? Meaning he's a private sector lawyer who was brought in as a independent consultant to help them in this case. Whatever the state wants to pay him, the state can pay him. And unless you can establish a link that somehow there was almost like Menendez-like fraud, that they earned money on false representations, his submissions about time was wrong, or his requests for reimbursements were fraudulent, it's an arm's length agreement between the state and an individual, and that is the state's and the individual's prerogative. And in fact, I don't see how, but for appearance purposes, the fact that they were in an adult relationship with one another during the pendency of this case so far, and now they've broken up in August, we learned, has anything to do with a motion for disqualification. It's just not seemingly relevant to me. I'm actually surprised that the judge had this hearing in open court. Isn't this something he could have disposed of in his chambers? The state moved to quash this subpoena and prevent this hearing from going forward. But the judge, I think, trying to you know be careful and ensure that there's no allegations of sort of politics on his part, decided to let the hearing go forward. I think he could have ended this hearing before it started, and I think he could have ended this hearing long into the day. But, you know, he's a smart guy, and he decided this was in the best interest of the case and all the parties to have a full hearing of all of the allegations, and then he'll render his decision. Based on the evidence that I've seen so far, I don't see any basis for the disqualification, nor do I see any basis for the dismissal. That all said, if I were Nathan Wade, having been sort of found not to have violated any of the canons of ethics or the criminal law, I would say, you know what, in the interest of the best, the best interest of this case, I'm going to now step aside and let somebody else take over. It's just too much of a distraction to have me here. Let's talk about his testimony for a bit. How did you find his testimony? Was he credible to you? He was very calm and collected, and he took issue with, I thought, a lawyer who asked some pretty unfounded questions, meaning there was no foundation for her questions. Look, her very first witness, she couldn't even get testimony out of him, and she had to dismiss him. The second witness seems to have had a bias that she didn't bring out herself because she was fired by, by Willis. So when you get to Wade, who was very calm, very collected, answering her questions in a business-like way, I don't think she made any headway with him. And I think that he came off looking, you know, rather sober as a witness. He did quibble with the interrogatories in his divorce case and, you know, what exactly the questions meant. It sounded like he had a different interpretation of the questions than most people would. Well, you know, you get a written interrogatory and you read it, and you answer it the way you understand the question to be on the paper. You don't have to say, well, what was the questioner really trying to get at here? That's not your job. Your job is to answer the question, and he answered it, and he explained his thinking in the manner in which he answered it. So I think in some respects, bad questions are on the questioner. They're not on the answerer. Then we had this moment of real drama where there 
arguing about whether or not Fanny Willis should have to testify, and she appears in a shocking pink dress in the frame of the camera and says, I'm ready to go. Yeah, that's right. And she went. <laughs> and, and she was pretty forceful that she is an independent woman who, I think she said that she and Wade broke up because Wade said something that was rather sexist, misogynist. And she said, you know what, I don't need this and, and walked away from it. So I think that, you know, if you're watching this from the standpoint of a, of a powerful prosecutor defending herself from accusations that pertain mostly to her private life, I think she did a good job. Yeah. And I was surprised that the judge let some of the questioning go on and on. For example, so she and Nathan Wade said that she reimbursed him with cash for the expenses he paid for. And she said she kept cash in her house and she went, you know, through a long litany of how her father told her that, et cetera, et cetera. But then they kept questioning, well, where in your house? You know, how much did you have? Where did that come from? Yes, I thought that that could have been cut much shorter. Now, look, if she was a criminal defendant on trial for money laundering, having money that exceeds your means, then those are, you know, sort of routine questions. But that's not what she is. She's not a criminal defendant and she's not on trial for money laundering. And they're asking her, how do you pay your bills? I pay a lot of bills by writing a check. I think I'm sort of an outlier there. Most mm-hmm. people don't pay that way. Most people are Venmoing or credit carding or debit carding. I just don't like doing that. I like having a check and I like getting it back in the mail. So does that make me what? Old? Yeah. Does it make <laughs> me a criminal? Absolutely not. <laughs> So do you think it was an example of the witness in control of the examination? Yeah, I thought the direct examination and the cross-examination across all of the witnesses was pretty pedestrian. And, you know, it's funny because they all know one another. Willis and the lawyer for Rohan, they tried cases against one another when she was a public defender and she and Willis was a prosecutor. Willis knows Wade uh, professionally and Wade knows Merchant. Yeah, when Merchant said in the beginning of the uh, Wade, you you know, of course, I supported you, Wade, when you ran for office, and I wore your T-shirt, and my kids wore your T-shirt. The judge says, I'm sorry, Miss Merchant, that has nothing to do with anything. So, there, you know, it is this group of sort of friends who, you know, have all gone sideways with each other. And, of course, Ms. Yurti, the former friend of Ms. Willis from college, who Willis fired, is testifying that this relationship started years before anybody else seems to support it. And, of course, the clear bias was established by prosecution for the state saying, you were fired by her, weren't you? And she wouldn't even say, yes, she says, well, I, I resigned. Well, you resigned because you were told you were going to be fired, you know. So the whole thing was circus-like. But when you ask the ultimate question of do you think that they – presented sufficient evidence to require, as a matter of law, the recusal of Willis or the recusal of Wade or the dismissal of the indictment, I think the answer at this point is no. We come back tomorrow to see part two, but on part one, I think they have not met their burden. And I thought that Willis was really dominant and expressed her outrage and waving papers around and saying, these people are on trial for election subversion. I'm not the one on trial. And really, her outrage at 
this happening to her and the lies that she said were in the motions by the defense attorneys here. I think she showed righteous indignation, which I think if you're watching this as a lay person and you're thinking, what would I be like if I were in Ms. Willis's shoes? I think that most people would say, absolutely, go, you know, you go girl or whatever the expression is, <laughs> um, stand up for yourself. And also what came out too was how hard it's been for her since she's had this case because she's had to keep moving because of death threats. So that was another sort of human element. So she was tough and she was funny and she was sort of, you know, telling a story. I think you could feel both, you know, sort of sympathy and empathy for her. And, you know, she's a young African-American woman who has done miraculous things in her career. And now you have this head of the Republican Party in, in Georgia and his lawyer accusing her of wrongdoing. And I think she said, essentially, you are the ones who are doing this for political purposes. You are the ones whose motives are to be impugned, not me. So we'll see how her testimony concludes tomorrow. Thanks so much for your insights, Michael. I really appreciate your being here. That's former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.